So when Konoe finally met with the emperor in February 1945, he argued that Japan had to consider surrendering to the United States because the alternative was catastrophic. The Soviet Union would use the exhaustion and the demoralization of the Japanese people Fuzzy audio, you say? Well, how, how's the how's the fuzzy audio now? So, I love Audible Books, bro. You, you just uh, you subscribe, you get get a title every month, and I just put Japan into Audible.com, and I purchased this series, The Rise of Modern Japan. It's like a six-hour university course, The Rise of Modern Japan. It only cost me seven dollars to foment a communist coup. Japan would then lose not only the war, but also the monarchy. Private business would disappear. Japan would become a Soviet satellite state, maybe like Yugoslavia, or even worse, like Poland. But Konoe, despite his lofty aristocratic lineage, he'd lost credibility. He'd previously advised the emperor back in 1937 that Japan could defeat China with a decisive knockout blow. So in 1945, the emperor disregarded him, and he sided with the generals who told him that the war was still winnable. Now let's... Okay, so you're probably thinking right now about, you know, why did Japan finally surrender to the United States in 1945? And... What does that have to do with the librarian who finally surrendered to my charms in 1994? And, you know, what the hell was going on with me in 1994? So I started making partial recovery from chronic fatigue syndrome at the end of 1993 when I was living in Orlando, Florida. Then I meet, met Dennis Prager Super Bowl weekend, I think in late January, early February 1994. Dennis says, if I ever move to Los Angeles, he might have a job for me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm moving to Los Angeles. I finally moved to Los Angeles at the end of March. And turned out Dennis Prager did not have a job for me or maybe just like saw it right through me and realized that I am a person of bad character who he would not want to put into his employ. So then I open up uh, LA Weekly and look for jobs and there are all these acting and modeling jobs. And I thought, heck yeah, I'm going to become an actor and a model. So I save all my money for acting classes and live out of my car. And I also live with, you know, I, I rely on the kindness of strangers. Not for the first time, not for the last time. I moved to Los Angeles. I rely on the kindness of strangers. And one you know, kind man who was not a stranger but had been a very good friend to me over the previous six years was Jules Zentner, UCLA professor of Scandinavian literature, and he let me stay at his apartment in, in Westwood. It's just that just things got a little awkward one, one night when I, I told him about this hot and heavy heavy date I'd had with, with this woman. She was, she was a doctor, like a Jewish doctor. And I'd, I'd uh, connected with her via a singles ad. But then I was seeing this other woman at the time. And this other woman I was seeing, like, got on the phone when I was talking to the doctor. And it created, you know, somewhat a complicated uh, arrangement. And the, the other woman thought that I had just, like, this endless appetite for, you know, attention and, and romantic intrigue. So I was telling, you know, Jules about my romantic intrigues and something snapped in him. And when I went to bed, he comes padding into to, you know, my, my room and, you know, gets down on his knees beside me and asks me if I want a blowjob. And that just kind of, uh, 
our, our friendship was never really the same after that. So he also asked me to leave because I left dishes in the sink and I made some long distance calls without clearing it with him first. I did, you know, always pay him back, but I wasn't maybe the greatest roommate, but he let me take a shower there for, for the next few months. So for about six months, I lived out of my car and 1994 when I first moved to LA so I could you know save all those precious dollars for acting class and I started uh, dating a librarian and then uh, one one afternoon she calls me in in tears and you know implores me to come over and you know implores me to stay the night and you know things take their course so why did the librarian finally surrender to me in 1994 was it the you know the nature of my physical charms was it the quintessential nature of my spiritual charms was it the depth of my psychology was it the profundity of my insights was it the the beauty of my speech was it the charm of my australian accent no it was someone had just robbed her apartment and she felt incredibly violated and so as she was dating me at the time, she asked me to come over and, you know, spend spend the night, spend several nights and, and keep her safe. And because she'd been robbed, right, she brought me over and it was a lot nicer staying in her apartment than sleeping in my car and then going over to Jules's place to take a shower. So she finally surrendered to me because she got robbed. All right. The, the situation changed and suddenly... Like she wanted, you know, a hyper masculine bloke like like myself to, you know, be staying nights with her. So why did Japan, for example, why did Japan suddenly decide to surrender to the United States in August 1945? Oh, it's the nuclear weapons. It's that first one on Hiroshima and then the one on Nagasaki. That's why Japan finally decided to surrender to the United States, you say. Well, step forward to August 1945. What finally ended the war in the Pacific? What convinced Japan to surrender on August 15, 1945? Now, standard American accounts focus unsurprisingly almost entirely on the United States. Was it the Battle of Okinawa in April, May, and June 1945 that broke the emperor's confidence in his own military? Or was it conventional air power, which reduced major Japanese cities to rubble? As you may know, the U.S. actually stopped the aerial bombardment of Hiroshima in May 1945 so that the impact of an atomic bomb would be measurable. Was it the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August 6th or the second bomb on Nagasaki on August 9th? Well, as you may have noticed, there's an elephant in the room. The Soviet Union attacked Japan with overwhelming force beginning hours before the U.S. dropped the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki on August 9th. The Soviet Union swept through Manchuria, crushing exhausted Japanese troops and capturing tens of thousands of prisoners of war. They swept down the Kurile Islands so that the invading force gained a guard. So there's a life lesson here, right? The world is not always about you and your nuclear weapons and your airborne assaults and your charms and your physical vitality and your, you know, ruggedly handsome good looks. Now, sometimes it's about staying out of the, the grasp of, you know, someone 
much less desirable than you. ...post less than four miles from Japan proper. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin even considered seizing parts of Hokkaido, Japan's second largest island, until FDR's successor, President Harry Truman, pushed back hard. Why did the Soviets attack? Well, back in February 1945, Stalin had committed to doing so to his allied partners, the United States and Britain, at the Yalta Conference in Crimea. He promised Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill that the USSR would attack Japan two or three months after the surrender of Nazi Germany. In return, the Soviets were promised Manchuria, the southern half of Sakhalin Island, and the Kuril Islands. Russia, by the way, had ceded the Kuril Islands to Japan way back in 1875. Subsequently, at a meeting between Truman and Stalin at Potsdam, Germany, in late July 1945, Truman concluded that the Soviets would enter the war against Japan sometime in August. All right, so this is from the Rise of Modern Japan. Great six-hour university-level class that you can purchase on Audible for just $7. Okay, so I was just reading an article in a Politico by Jack Schaefer. Rupert Murdoch rides the Trump tiger and gets eaten, right? Rupert Murdoch, Fox News, that, that behemoth. Well, the, the, the 40 show, right, maybe more important, more powerful than Fox News and Joe Rogan put together. Because Fox News and Joe Rogan, they get their audience by telling people what they want to hear. I get my audience by telling people what they don't want to hear. Do you know how many complaints I receive about my recitations of you know, my exploits in, in love and lust and, and loss? Right? I, I get those complaints all the time, and yet I keep you know, bringing it back. Do you know how often I hear, oh, 40 would be so good if you just like devoted a show just to one topic but do i do that no all right so i can do my show for like three people live and two of them might actually take something out of that that show that they then apply to the world and make significant transformations and that could make the show more powerful than three million you know mindless viewers of fox news you know tuning in to you know be told what they want to hear and, and Joe Rogan's audience, all right, that's the best description is, you know, goop for men. Generally speaking, Fox News and Joe Rogan are a goop for men. They, they are the intellectual equivalent of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's website, uh, Goop. But here, we don't pay attention to what the audience wants, right? Here, we just do what 40 wants, right? I am here a lonely servant of the truth. Right now, it's just you and me and four people watching on YouTube, one person watching on Rumble, one person watching on Odyssey, one person watching on Twitter, right? We're just having this incredibly intimate conversation, uh, changing the world under, under the radar. Right, that's what's going on here. Okay, so Rupert Murdoch rides the Trump tiger and gets eaten. The Dominion lawsuit has exposed the powerlessness of the Fox News type. So you might be tempted to think, I have often thought, oh my God, you know, women are so powerful because they have, you know, certain certain charms that, that men want, all right? And, and so often I felt 
so powerless, you know, in comparison to the amazing charms that, uh, you know, women display. But then once I'd get to know women and their complexity, particularly in my, you know, love addiction, sex addiction, relationship addiction, 12-step programs that, that I've attended, and I get to hear, you know, how difficult life can be for women who, you know, feel ashamed when they've, you know, been sliding around or, you know, making all sorts of self-destructive decisions and how they are, are driven by the, their own self-destructive impulses and you know, particularly 12-step programs helped me realize, you know, that, that women have it tough too. And also I remember from my years reporting on the porn industry, as soon as I got to know a porn star, it significantly diminished her erotic appeal to me. Because once I got to know her complexity, her, you know, incurable case of anal warts, boy, who is that, who is that uh, porn star who crossed over into a movie about a, a hawker uh, by the guy who did Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And she was a very intellectual porn star. She, she you know, read a lot of books. And, you know, she got the, the lead in, in a mainstream movie. And, boy, was she ticked at me. She did not appreciate my, you know, selfless service of the truth, you know, pointing out that through her, you know, incredible adventures and and the, the challenges that she she faced in her particular entertainment genre that she developed you know sasha gray that she developed you know incurable anal warts so i don't know about you but for me when i find you know sasha gray never held you know erotic power over me but if i were to you know find a woman who held significant erotic power over me but i was to find out that she had incurable anal warts now, even if I had no plans to be, you know, a backdoor ranger, right, it would significantly reduce her charms to me. Or if I found out she had, like, Crohn's disease, that it would reduce her charms. I remember there was this, uh, this porn star, and she had a BA in English literature. She had E-cup breasts. She was erudite. She was witty. She was a good writer, and she had done everything to seduce me one evening. And I go off to meet her in the San Fernando Valley, and then she's going to take me back to her place. She, she'd taken her boyfriend that she lived with, her loser boyfriend. She told him to make himself scarce for the evening. And so, you know, we, we're meeting at a, a Denny's or something for, you know, a fancy dinner. And... We were working together at that time. I was working for, I was writing a column for, for Lensman. And so we, we, you know, have this fancy dinner at, at Denny's and she orders a ham salad. Right. She had all these charms. Right. She had erudition. She had personality. She had wit. She had profundity. You know, her conversation sparkled. Her intellect gleamed. You know, her body was shapely. She had a, you know, a jacuzzi that we were, you know, all set to sit in. But me sitting there watching her eat a ham salad and I could not do it. I could not make a move on her. I could not lay a finger on her. Just watching this woman eat a ham salad, that just completely ended any erotic attraction. So for me, a woman eats a ham salad in front of me or comes down with an incurable case of, you know, anal warts or she gets HIV or she develops, you know, a smack addiction or a crack addiction or, a, 
you know, any, you know, alcohol uh, addiction or, you know, I realize that she likes men who beat the crap out of her or, you know, I find out that she's, you know, fond of calling 911. Like suddenly, you know, this enticing, you know, erotic, you know, powerful creature who I, you know, I feel like she's just got me in the palm of her hand. Suddenly, you know, that all, all that power goes away or, I, I've worked jobs. I've had bosses, and and sometimes I have to do what they say, and I feel so powerless. And then, then, you know, they come down with cancer, or you know, their wife gets them, you know, arrested, or you know, their their wife uh, divorces them, or their wife cheats on them, or their children won't speak to them, or you know, there are all sorts of horrible things that can happen to people, and and you think. Wow, you know, my my boss is not so powerful and you know, maybe they start relying on me that I've got to come through with certain things for them to pay the bills this month. And so the boss is not the boss, right? The situation's the boss. So, yeah, between incurable anal warts and eating a ham salad in front of me, I actually find the ham salad much more of a of a turn off. I mean, that's that's just me. I mean, your your mileage may, may vary, but I don't know. As as someone with considerable narcissistic tendencies, all right, I tend, you know, to put people on a pedestal because, like, my neshama, my soul thinks, oh, you know, this is a great person, and then if I can have any kind of connection to that great person, that will lift me up to where I belong. So I'll be, you know, up near the pedestal with this this great person. But then every well, that you know, I put on a pedestal. You know, I found out that they're deeply flawed and vulnerable in their own ways. So, you know, I, I may think, oh, Dennis Prager, man, he's really got it going. Nationally syndicated, you know, radio show, man, you know, tremendous learning and you know, widespread admiration and respect in the community. He's reproduced. He's never lost a friend. You know, what a great guy. But you know, Dennis Prager has his frailties and vulnerabilities. One thing that I learned from interviewing thousands of people is that everybody. You know, is far more vulnerable than I expected. And uh, Fox News is not the kingmaker, right? So an article of faith among modern media observers, writes Jack Schaefer, preaches that Rupert Murdoch can't manipulate American politics any direction he wants through the broadcast of his lucrative media property, the Fox News Channel. Well, guess what? People did not evolve to be gullible, right? If we evolved to be gullible, we wouldn't be here, right? We were not born yesterday. We are evolved to be highly suspicious and quite effective at seeing through other people trying to manipulate us. I remember when the loonies would walk by my mate's place in Australia. There was the, the lunatic asylum, you know, in Marasset, and the loonies would walk by every day to buy, you know, cigarettes and, and lollies at the, you know, the, the store. And I would, and they would carry a radio with them as they walked. And I would always try to, you know, bargain my used underwear for that, for that radio. Even though they were lunatics, they never fell for my machinations. So even lunatics can be quite good at, at seeing through our manipulation techniques. I mean, I remember that, that there have been women who I have given the gift of my attention. And I have given them the gift of my admiration. And I've given them the gift of my desire to get to know them better, more intensely, to create some kind of visceral connection. And I have showered them with all my charms. And they have said no. 
right? So even even the the, the weaker, fairer sex, right? When when I have been at the height of my my charming powers, they they've said no, because people are not easy to manipulate. Now we're very easy at uh, fooling ourselves. That's why we need to think out loud, think socially, think with with other people. All right. So this article of faith that uh, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News are the kingmakers, right, which Democrats share with their children to give them nightmares and Republicans share with their children as a cautionary tale, has given Rupert Murdoch kingmaker status over the years as he has directed his channel to reward his supplicants and punish his enemies. But on closer examination, right, and especially in light of the testimony released in Dominion Voting Systems, $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox News for its coverage of the stolen presidential election 2020, Rupert Murdoch isn't always the master puppeteer he is reputed to be. In Murdoch's own words, delivered in Dominion lawsuit depositions, he describes himself as frightened by the power Donald Trump holds over the Fox audience. So I moved to Los Angeles in 1994, and from about 1994 until, what, about 1999, Michael Ovitz was known as the most powerful man in Hollywood. And then he went to work for Michael Eisner, and he essentially lost all his power. And then Michael Eisner was thought of as a very powerful man, but he stopped being effective running Disney and ABC, and he lost power. Donald Trump was president of the United States, but there was a 2% swing against Donald Trump in the suburbs, both in the 2018 election and then the 2020 presidential election. Donald Trump lost power. So there are situations that would bring Donald Trump back to the presidency in 2024. There are situations that would bring Ron DeSantis to the presidency in 2024. There are situations that would reelect Joe Biden. There are even situations that might push you know, Kamala Harris over the top, and she could be the next president of the United States. So who will decide... What will decide who will be the president of the United States, the seemingly most powerful man in the world in 2024? The answer is events, my dear boy, events. So Murdoch isn't the master puppeteer. Murdoch's, okay. Murdoch portrays himself as the supreme authority at his network, but he is unable to control his primetime anchors who endorsed Donald Trump's lies of a stolen election. And why did the primetime anchors, all right, these powerful people, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, right? Why did they push Trump's lies of a stolen election? Because they were afraid of losing their audience. I'm not afraid of losing my audience. I will stand here and I will deliver to you what is true, what is important, right? What you need to hear, right? Uh, it's not a big deal for me if I'm at nine live viewers right now or 29. I am just a humble servant of the truth. Right, but if you're used to having three million people watch you and then suddenly your audience goes down to one million, all right, you lose two million people watching you, that can be absolutely devastating. It's like let's say you get a hot wife. Do you realize how much you know aggravation and work you have to put in to keep a hot wife? Right? If you if you you know married a, a plain woman, right, you wouldn't have to put as much effort in. Right? You wouldn't have to be as you know, concerned that, you know, that, that you're going to lose her. But you, you marry a hot wife, and you have, become, you have become a hostage to having a hot wife. Let's say you, you marry a hot wife, and you develop quite a, a yen for her. Right? Then you become incredibly vulnerable, and when she says, 
Oh, 40, I don't want you live streaming anymore. Now, I want you to spend more time making money. And if she's gotten her wiles into me, then if I'm not you know, internally strong enough, I, I would succumb. Or I get a hot wife, and I love my wife, and then I love my kids, and I love my community, and we love our police, don't we, and our law enforcement too. All right? And I may have other priorities other than live streaming. I might need to you know, just devote myself to making more money. And so there go the live streams. Right, So when we connect, we become vulnerable. When we love, we become vulnerable. When we care about someone, we become vulnerable. When you know, we, we scratch an itch in a very effective way, uh, we become you know, very... Back to Jack Schaefer here, writing in Politico. Rupert Murdoch regrets not interceding interceding, which he says was within his power to keep stolen election fabulous like Rudolph Giuliani and Sidney Powell from repeatedly appearing on his shows. So I could have, you know, a bunch of antisocial people appearing on my shows and I could have hundreds of viewers a night, right? I could have the equivalent of bump fights on this channel, right? Bump fights are incredibly compelling, right? I got about my biggest audience ever when I did that Jim Go Saturday Night Massacre but I never did any show like that ever again. I didn't like how it made me feel. So, you know, the burden of having, you know, those 1,000 live viewers you know, coming for the, the equivalent of a bump fight, I, I say, no, thank you. Like, it would be fun to bring, you know, a bunch of, you know, wig nats, you know, alt-riders onto the show. I could just uh, stream it on Odyssey. All right, there, there's virtually no, no censorship on Odyssey, but... I don't want a show of bum fights. I want an elevated, erudite, now uplifting, highbrow, high IQ, now pro-social, you know, a, a you know, green, green juice drink vegetable. You know, this is like this show is like eat your vegetables. That's what we're about, folks. We're we're just sitting here eating our vegetables together. Now, I don't actually like vegetables, so I don't drink eat vegetables. But what I do do that, that's healthy, I buy like um, green juice. I go on Amazon Fresh. I look for the green juice without the fruit juice. And they had a special, they had the, the green juice for like $3.50 each. So I bought eight. So I know I should be eating a salad, you know, at least every day. You know, I know I should be eating like fresh food, but it's just like too much trouble to organize and, and assemble. And I don't want to spend the money of, and, and so for $3.50, I could get the equivalent of like a fresh salad every day. And it's all like bottled, you know, delivered to me by, by Amazon. I can keep it in my fridge every day. I can like drink my, my green salad. And so here I am. I am serving up to you the intellectual equivalent of one of those green juice drinks that you can get on Amazon Fresh without the fruit juice, right? So it's got some protein, uh, very low in, in sugar. It's just filled with like eight different like green vegetables, Right? That's what this show's all about, right? This is no longer a show of bum fights. So I could bring on the equivalent of, you know, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Even though some Fox News executives and anchors were gagging off screen on Giuliani and Powell's wild eyed theories. So, yeah, you do a show about how the, the world is flat and it's a lot easier to get an audience. Far from being a media superpower, as Rupert Murdoch's foes would describe it, Murdoch comes off as trapped 
by the craven choices he made to serve as Trump's supplicant and protector. So I don't know about you, but I am a bloke and I have a penis. And like most blokes with penises, I have this recurring fantasy of breaking free, like, you know, finding a a hole, you know, in the, in the line of life where you've got all those, you know, 300 pound, you know, super predators, you know, bearing down on you to tackle you. And I just want to run to daylight. So like most blokes with penises, like one of my most strongest desires, fantasies, you know, wishes, dreams is to run to daylight, freedom, the open road. I want to be free. I don't want to be tied down by all these restrictions and obligations and onerous burdens. I want to be free to be me, right? I I just want to go out there and explore new things. I want to take off to Australia for, for three months. I want to drive to New York City. I want to drive to Vancouver. I want to, you know, live stream at 5 a.m. or not live stream for, for 10 days. You know, I, I want to be free. But when you're a normal adult, you know, when you're a manly man with normal levels of responsibility, like a, a spouse and, and kids and family and a community and a job, you can't do that. You are going to be trapped. All right. You're going to feel trapped. So, Amazon Fresh raised that minimum delivery to 150 minimal unconscionable. Not unconscionable for me. No worries. The last uh, two weeks, whatever I've hit up on Amazon Fresh, I've been spending like 250 bucks. And it's it's no problem because I get super chats. So I can buy my $3.50 green drinks. I can I can buy my my Noosa yogurts. So good. Like $2.50 each for Noosa yogurt. I mean, so many good like uh, Greek yogurts on, on Amazon, my, my almond milks. Oh, I, I got I to gotta stop talking about food, sounding like a woman. All right. By 2020, Rupert Murdoch had been trying to elect a president of his own choosing for decades. Right? He loaded the Fox payroll with presidential aspirants like Sarah Palin, Newt Gingrich, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, John Kasich, and Ben Carson. Murdoch gave Trump the keys to popular shows like Fox and Friends, both before his run and after he became president, allowing to phone in and gap at his leisure. All this squiring of Republican candidates became known as the Fox primary. The implication that the road to the White House led through the Fox green room. The implication that delighted Murdoch. It's like if you become a powerful live streamer or a powerful figure in, in Hollywood, you could be under the delusion that you know anything anyone needs to succeed in the entertainment industry or the media industry or the you know, live streaming industry, like all the talent, all the information, all the goodness that they need to succeed is inside of you. And then, you know, all the, the beautiful young women need to do is to suck out that, that essence from you. And then they can become stars in their own right. You can have that kind of delusion, but it's a delusion. It's not true. I know that's pretty shocking. 2011, Fox News host Sean Hannity personalized the selection process by labeling his interviews with White House applicants the Hannity primary. Murdoch has failed again and again to elect a president of his choice. In the 2016 campaign, he opposed Donald Trump. He tweeted in July 2015, a month after Trump announced, when is Donald Trump going to stop embarrassing his friends, let alone the whole country? Trump was so furious at Fox coverage at one point, and with then host Megyn Kelly, he retaliated by skipping the Fox primary debate. Murdoch opposed Donald Trump's signature positions on immigrants, the Muslim ban, and trade. Murdoch does not like Donald Trump. Only after Trump paved a sure path to the nomination did Murdoch start sucking up to Trump, and he sucked hard. 
Why did he suck it so hard? Because Donald Trump told him, Rupert, all the power you need, all the wisdom you need is inside of me. Out, And then you can be king. The Trump-Fox feedback loop benefited both parties as Fox ran interference for Trump throughout his presidency and Trump filled Fox's schedule with the strong manly meat of his persona. Now, the downside of grabbing manly meat by the tail is how to ungrab the tail as the ride slows or the tiger gets hungry. So Rupert Murdoch probably thought, oh, I'm going to get off this manly meat. Not, you know, not such a big deal. I've, I've been riding you know, Donald Trump's manly meat for about five years now. I'm just going to graciously dismount from Donald Trump's manly meat after Trump loses the 2020 election, and I'm just going to impale myself on some other manly presidential meat. But it was not that easy. When other news networks called the election for Joe Biden before Fox, Rupert Murdoch expressed relief in an email to his son and fellow Fox executive, Lachlan Murdoch. There's a new biography of Lachlan that came out in Australia. It's in all the airport uh, bookstores. And I kept trying to find a free copy online. I couldn't do it. We should and could have gone first, but at least being second saves us a Trump explosion, Rupert wrote. Fox was spared the immediate Trump explosion, but it came eventually as the network did not toe the Trump line on his election lies. Donald Trump savaged the network on Twitter, writing Fox News daytime is virtually unwatchable, especially during the weekends. Watch OANN. Wow, there's some compelling TV news. Newsmax or anything else. Viewers defected as instructed. Now, why... Does Donald Trump have such a hold over people? He doesn't have such a hold over people because people inherently care about Donald Trump. People care about Donald Trump to the extent that he is instrumental in you know, creating, unleashing, giving opportunities for what people want. Right? You don't care about me just because you care about me. You care about me because you know I unleash the tiger in you. My God, I haven't been able to sleep the last two nights because the, the bloody third test between Australia and India, the cricket series going on in, in India is just so compelling. I'm unable to sleep because it doesn't start till about 8 p.m. at night. It, it wraps up about uh, 3 a.m. And I'm just a shell of a man. Like we're two days in and India's batted twice and they're up by about 76 runs. So you would think absolutely assured you know, Australia has one more chance to bat, so, you know, 10, 10 batsmen, right? You'd think, no worries, 40. Australia absolutely assured to get at least 76 runs and, and win this test match. But it's not assured, all right? Australia lost last night. I mean, I couldn't sleep. Australia lost six wickets and only gained 11 runs. Like, they were cruising along. I thought, oh, we're doing it. We're going to beat India in India, right, we were looking good right up until about 10 p.m. And then between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m., Australia lost six wickets for 11 runs, completely bowled out. And now they just need to you know, get up 75 runs. And there was a point that I was saying, but I've completely forgotten my, my point. Okay. So in addition to Trump's fury, Fox was fretting about viewer anger and inside Fox always pandemonium. Lachlan Murdoch said the drop of ratings would keep me awake at night. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same way because five minutes ago, I had seven live viewers on Rumble and now I only have two. I don't think I'm going to be up to sleep tonight. Oh, man. 
five minutes ago, I had 10 live viewers on YouTube. Now I'm down to six. Oh, man. Five minutes ago, I had one live viewer on Twitter. Now I'm down to zero. Luckily, I retained my one viewer on Odyssey, but I think that one viewer is me. How humbling. The day before the January 6th Capitol Hill riot, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News Media Chief Executive Suzanne Scott plotted to have primetime Fox host Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram explain Biden's election to viewers who hadn't gotten the message. I mean, that's kind of what I, I do on this show. This is a show where I, I talk to the retarded about God. Privately, they are all there, Scott told Murdoch, but we need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers. As the New York Times reports, no statements of that kind were made on the air. So Rupert Murdoch's fear of a Trump temper tantrum. Bro, you big oh, oh, I'm sorry, bro. Why why have I not heard you? Bro, try call, call me again. I, I just I, I I don't know what's happened. I'm I guess I'm all nervous because I I really need Amazon to deliver me that green juice, but sometimes they make substitutes. And so if they substitute like fruity juice for my green juice and like eight fruity juices arrive, I'm I'm not gonna be very happy. And so I'm kind of kind of nervous. Oh, Elliot Blatt, why why oh man, I need to figure this out. Why am I not hearing? Okay, speakers. Oh, I know why I'm not hearing. Foolish, foolish me. I am in error. Oh, Jesus. Oof. Hey, uh, caller, you're on the air. Welcome. I can hear you. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You're not transmitting, and that's entirely my fault. So let me go to settings. Okay, um... What the hell? Why? Why are we not? Um, <laughs> Bloody hell. So that's my microphone and then speakers and okay. Um, try it again, Elliot. Uh, I can, I can, yes, I can hear you, but why? Why is the audience unable to hear you? That is that is the question that must be asked. So microphone, okay, that's that. That's the microphone. Oh, and then uh, speakers, 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 speakers. Uh, okay, here, okay, try it again, Elliot. How about now? How about now? How about now? Yes, now we can hear you. I am so sorry, Elliot. No problem, man. Tech, tech, tech issues are real. I understand. It's, it's part of part of life. You just got to roll with it. Oh, so anyway, uh, Luke. Yes, I sir. was thinking today. Um, I never got to the final point. I called in last night, right? And I laid down this immense predicate, and then you started asking me all these questions about. You know, what I felt and all, all this kind of stuff, which were all fine and good, but it threw me off because I'd forgotten. I'd meant to tell that story as a lead in to the final point, and I never got to the final point. So I'd like to get to the final point if I could. Please. Now, should I recap a little bit? Just 
basically let me just recap for one minute just just in case someone's here that wasn't here last night but I, I was basically saying how i was working with this guy and I, you know so i'm working i'm paying this guy he's beginning to frustrate me he's con- con- continually frustrating me by his sort of angle shooting and trying to get the better of me in different ways and how my feelings generosity had ultimately just turned sour and they've become rage you know i've Basically, they've become the opposite of generosity. You know, I want to kill him, right? <clears throat> and then I brought up Scott Adams, right? And got your commentary on Scott Adams, and we all know that story, so I don't need to recapitulate that. But that, so my personal story and the Scott Adams sort of more global story are linked, and they're linked in this way. It's that I'll, um, trying to figure out how to say this delicately um, within the terms of service, but Scott Adams' grievance seems to be uh, a feeling of exasperation and resentment after he feels have he feels himself as having been very generous to a certain community. And this community has not only been not appreciative, but they've been actively hostile. And now he's basically given them the finger. And oh. Wow, now I right. see where you're going. You see where I'm going, bro? Yeah. So, um, and now is this just sort of a universal dynamic? Like the people you try to help, if you're not able to help them or they can't help themselves, they're just going to eventually resent you and then you're going to resent them and it's just going to be really strong animosity. And it feels like we may have crossed a certain... Rubicon. In that, Have we crossed a yeah. Rubicon? It may be. Scott Adams could be the Rubicon. Who knows? But it feels like we've definitely reached at least a milestone. You know, and it's a very unsettling milestone. What do you think? Okay, so I think this is people getting out of touch with reality. It is ridiculous to think that... Uh, if you support the black community that they, as a non-black, that they will then feel deep gratitude for you. Right? That's just not going to happen. And it's also ludicrous for you who continually is pumping out empathy and kindness and goodness to the undeserving to think that eventually the undeserving will smarten up, shape up, and be grateful. Right, so both you and Scott Adams are out of touch with reality. Now, I'm out of touch with reality in my own ways. So this is not, you know, 40 on high. What do you think? Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the painful realization that I'm basically have, I am coming to. And there is a certain amount of wisdom in that, you know, like, your attempts to interfere in the lives of other people ultimately make their lives worse and they make your life worse. Ah, uh, uh, wait, 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 wait. It's ineffective attempts to interfere in the lives of other people. So we have yeah. tremendous power to influence others, but never, almost never in a direct way. So if I were to try to push you to buy cotton sheets, I mean, you were on a cotton sheet jihad a year ago. Is, do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you're I, still sleeping on plastic. Yeah. Whatever I'm sleeping on. I, yeah. When, whenever anyone comes on strong, 
saying you should use these kind of sheets, that's never going to be successful. But if yeah. you just share once, oh my God, I just you know got these new sheets and they're fantastic, and you don't say anything about what anyone else should do, you have a tremendous power to affect other people. But as soon as you try to push other people to do anything, we're evolutionarily adapted to resist. So we have tremendous power to influence other people. But as soon as we try to to use that power directly to shape people, they will always resist. So there are effective and ineffective ways of interacting with others. And it seems to me from your description of yourself and from Scott Adams' situation that uh, both of you were using ineffective ways to influence others. That seems right. Um, but, um, well, my problem is a failure to confront, right? I let things slide too much and then they ultimately build up and then I sort of no, 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 no. Your problem, if yeah. I may humbly say that, is you've gotten out of touch with reality. And so mm -hmm. this is just a symptom, right? Our problems are never our problems. Our problems are only symptoms of deeper problems that we don't want to look at. So you think that if you just, you know, confront things, if, if you just take this one action, like you, let's say you've got back pain, and if you just do this one exercise, that's going to sort out your back pain. But in all likelihood, your back pain is a symptom of much deeper issues that you don't want to confront. And so too with this troublesome employee, you think that if you just confront him, if you just deal with this situation, all right, you do this one easy trick, all right, then you will succeed. But this this frustrating interaction with your employee is a symptom of a much deeper problem that you don't want to look at, that you don't want to confront, that you don't want to struggle with. You don't want to see what this says about you. You think that this problem is all about him, but your problem here is not about him, it's about you, and that will take much more painful work than just doing like one easy trick to confront him. So this is my shadow. This is like in certain circles, they would call this my shadow, the shadow issue, the issue that's so buried deep that I, I can't see it and I can't confront it. It's sort of, but because I can't see it or confront it, it sort of invisibly controls me. Is that what yeah. you mean? Is yeah. that what you're going? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, no, it's, I, I, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, I, you're definitely right. There's this thing I can't sort of wrap my hands around. And um, it always leads to the same outcome. And, um, and I always think it's just something that needs to be tweaked. Right? Yes. And, and it's, it's more than a tweak. It needs to be uprooted. Yes. I would always tell my therapist, oh, man, I just wish there was like one easy tweak. I could do so that my life would transform. My therapist would say, you know, I'd encourage you to de do the deeper, harder work. There's not like one easy tweak that will enable your life to transform. So yeah, you and I, we both want that one easy tweak, but there's not an easy tweak. It's like me focusing on say getting married. The reason that I'm a 56 year old bachelor is not because of, you know, one easy tweak that I haven't done. It's a reflection of an overall struggle to relate to myself in a normal, healthy way, and therefore to relate to other people in normal, healthy ways. And one symptom of this struggle with you know, basic human connection is I'm a 56-year-old bachelor who's never earned over six figures in my life. But the lack of earning, 
the lack of marriage, you know, the lack of kids, the lack of, you know, retirement, that's all just a symptom of my fundamental, you know, disconnection over most of my life or all of my life from being at ease with myself and with others. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Um, but I'm getting discordant waves from you because, you know, just earlier you're talking about having this hot girlfriend and, you know, being under her control and influence may prevent you from live streaming, which is something that you need to do now. And that seems to be, uh, that would be a painful loss for you, it seems. And, but do you see where I'm going? Like, no, I mean, no, keep, is keep live, going. do you live, do you, do you say is live streaming because you're not healthy? Just pardon my clumsy Yeah, language. live streaming is a reflection of my lack of health. Not, not all of it. Like there's <laughs> probably a healthy amount of live streaming, but I do live streaming yeah. to an excess because it's a symptom of my lack of ease with myself and ease with other people. Like I am, I don't like to bargain and do normal human interactions. I like human interactions where I'm totally in charge and I can do that with live streaming, but that, that True. results in me leading a stunted life. It is like the equivalent of me going through life in, in a wheelchair. Speaking of which, I did remember that observation you've made about Australia and the lack of wheelchairs in public. <laughs> Do you remember this? Uh, yeah. yeah I noticed when I got back to LA, a lot more people in wheelchairs. Yeah. Well, I, I, I started noticing that myself and that's just, I just thought that was true everywhere, but maybe it's not true everywhere, but it's, it is depressing. You know, it's like, and like yesterday I was at whole foods and the woman in front of me was this, she had like these arm crutches like she could barely walk and she needed these um, they're sort of like crutches, but they kind of rest on your forearms. If you, if you know what I mean? I mean, she was, couldn't get around and like, I'm sitting behind her and I'm looking at this whole spectacle and I'm like, Oh, but the grace of God, and God, it was depressing. I just couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. And like, that's a position where I'm, I'm really ill at ease when I see somebody like, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, because it reminds you of your handicapped. own unwanted vulnerability. I mean, I, I'm the same way. I, it makes me very ill at yeah. ease because I am not at ease with my own vulnerability. We're, we're both incredibly vulnerable, but we don't want to think about that. And so when we encounter people who remind us of you know, the vulnerable nature of the human being, it is incredibly upsetting to us because we are detached from reality. Yeah, I, I'm amazed by people that can sort of be among that, like nurses and things that can be around like physical disfigurement and just really terrible injuries. And someone can be in that could be in that environment and not break down and just not be able to function. I mean, it's, that seems like a superpower. I yeah, or it. it's just someone who's at ease with reality. You know, reality is that we're incredibly vulnerable. And that we could be, you know, reduced to life in a wheelchair or even, you know, more, more vulnerable, you know, at, at any time. Uh, I was uh, Friday, Friday, I was sailing along Friday morning. I was just an incredibly productive 
jag. And I had just taken oh. I'd just taken two nicotine pieces of gum. Like I just started, you know, trying nicotine. You did it? Yes, you, I did it. You crossed that nicotine Rubicon, huh? Yeah, yeah. I just I wanted to try it out. Like this is my third time. So the first two times perfectly pleasant, yeah. you know, quite quite enjoyed it. So I'm sailing along, I'm just so productive, and then the world starts spinning. Like it, like I went from, you know, feeling on top of the world to feeling, you know, at the bottom of the world. Everything just started spinning. I had to just, I, I was somewhat in a public space, but I still had to like curl up and, and just like lie down oh. for, for 20 minutes. And I, I went from feeling powerful and strong to just completely vulnerable. And initially I, I blamed it on the nicotine gum, but I tried it before just perfectly, you know, pleasant effects. It was, I was hit with some kind of flu that, you know, on occasion yeah. will just, you know, make the world spin. So either one of us can be absolutely reduced to, you know, the most vulnerable state possible at any time. Okay. So it wasn't related to nicotine. It was just the onset of the flu that yeah. set you back. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I sporadically dip into the nicotine when I need a lift, but I, I don't want to become a habitual user of it. Um, but to your larger point, you know, about like why I can't connect with other people in the way other people seem to be able to, you know, and like uh, it's sort of always been there at a certain level, but it's also sort of made me who I am. You know, it's like I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm in a clearer space. And then as soon as I start to intermingle my life with other people, I'm always sort of jot about and I end up at some space where I just don't want to be. Yeah, uh, you're, like the, get in. you're like the porn star who was just, you know, serially abused as a child. And she, you know, learned to adapt to that, to floating outside of her body when she has sex. So now that she she takes this, you know, deforming of, of her soul and she uses it to make money. So mm. you're like the porn star who's like pulling, you know, 25 men anal gangbangs. She's taking something horrible that happened to her and she's totally transforming it and making money from it and, and bringing pleasure to hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, man, I hate the comparison, Luke. It's a pretty harsh comparison. I mean, the points are in the positive sense, not the the negative sense of the incurable anal warts. I mean, the the positive sense of being a porn star pulling twenty five men trains. Now, do you do you think your experience in the porn world has given you a keener insight to human nature? Like, as as grotesque as it is, does it does it do you feel like you've seen under the hood, as it were, like? Oh, I, what drives it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. In some ways, I mean, in other ways, I've probably been deformed and distorted by it. I mean, just like six years in bed, you know, age twenty-one to twenty-seven, spend those key years, twenty hours a day in bed. You know, I got some insights from it, and I also got deformed by it. Hey, we got well, Ricardo. Ricardo is with us. Hail, our people. Hail, Ricardo. Hail, Ricardo. Excellent. Blessings. Hail, victory. But not in the bad Nazi way. Oh, he's not on the screen. He's not on the call. He's just in the screen. He's the not chat. on the call. He's in the chat. But you know how oh, long okay. it's been since I've seen yeah. my mate Ricardo? Oh. It's forever, like been weeks. Forever. forever, forever. Hey, by the way, uh, speaking of Ricardo and 
the old days, shall we say. I caught Richard Spencer last night on a Twitter, uh, what do they call them? Not meets. Space. Um, space. space. Twitter space last night. It was twi- It was Richard Spencer, um, Chuck Johnson, his new buddy, and a couple of normies, you know, were all on the call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I listen to some of those. Hey, can you keep keep going? I just need to get my groceries, so I'll still be listening. I just can't talk right. to you for a minute. Keep going. All right, I'll try and recapitulate best I could, but I was, you know, it was in the middle of the night, and I was sort of half listening, and it was just Richard seemed like such a ghost of his former self, for one thing. That was observation number one. Observation number two is this Chuck Johnson guy is either – a complete bullshitter or he's got immense uh contacts in the upper echelons of american political life because he seemed to be telling some rather tall tales and i had no way of discerning whether or not they were true i think they're both not. true i think he's he's both delusional in some ways and he also he is friends with Matt Gates he did introduce congressman Matt Gates to to his wife so people are yeah. complicated like people yeah. are delusional in some ways, not nutty in other areas, you know, heroic yeah. in some ways, craven in others, cowardly in others, brave in others. People are mixed. Yeah, but and then he's got this I don't know if you heard this part or not, but he's theoretically he's sort of been on the inner circle or close to the inner circle of the Ron DeSantis phenomenon. Yeah. And, and he's do you heard this? Did you hear that part? No, I didn't hear any of it last night. Okay, but he he has this just horrific analysis of DeSantis, and he says DeSantis is this uh, just craven Machiavellian character, a real dark manipulative force, and he just he couldn't have heaped more scorn on DeSantis, um, you know, if he tried. He was really he was basically saying he's going to dedicate his life to making sure that DeSantis is not becomes president and i you know who know very little about DeSantis, have been favorably disposed towards him you know probably because ann coulter seems to have given her endorsement to him so how much do you know about DeSantis? how much do you know about chuck johnson and what do you think about this whole mess um, i think that you know both you know chuck johnson and ron DeSantis are incredibly good and smart at some things and uh not so good and not so smart at other things so about uh, five six years ago chuck johnson sought me out and uh, we met up and we went walking for for an hour or two. And, you know, we know a lot of people in common. We talked about the Jewish question. So Chuck Johnson talks about how he's a Christian, but I believe uh, genetically he's he's Jewish. So I, I know Chuck Johnson. He's done some great work no and some way. stupid stuff. Yeah. Chuck Johnson's in the tribe of Abraham, bro? And was I believe that so. Charles Johnson, that's yeah. his name? Yeah. And he's from Boston? Yeah, that's a serious. Um, that's some serious passing going on, my dude. <laughs> that's incredible because he he seemed to have a very very antagonistic relationship with Israel for sure. Yeah, yeah, he thinks that nine eleven was uh, carried out really by the Mossad. <laughs> okay, this is why I bow to politics because I just there's just so much, so much. So many assertions that just come out of nowhere and that I'm I just meant to believe them. And, you know, like I seriously I used to think I understood things and now I clearly don't understand things. And it's it's made me lose interest in politics generally. Um, I mean, 
does he offer any proof or any evidence? It just seems such a, like a weird assertion to me. Uh, I I guess I just tune out whenever he starts talking that way. So, but just because someone's, I've known quite a few people are absolutely nuts in some areas and still brilliant in other areas. So just because you are nutty in, in one thing, it doesn't mean that you're nutty in everything. And, oh, my, my, my groceries just been delivered. So please hold down the show for one minute. I just need to get my groceries. Uh, all right. I can try to hold the show. Okay. So uh, I'm not looking at the chat, but what do you think? How, a, how much do you know about Chuck Johnson? B, is he a bullshitter? C, is he someone worth listening to? D, why is Richard Spencer so chummy with him in the last couple of months? Um I think the Charles Johnson question needs to be answered. Um, so I'm just rambling here. Yeah, the, the groceries are coming up the up the stairs. But uh, I, I know quite a bit about Johnson. I know a lot of people in common. Like he's on friendly terms with Mickey Kaus. He's on friendly terms with a lot of you know influential people. He's very intelligent. He's probably got you know two standard deviations of IQ on me. Wow, bro, that's a lot. Um, well. Okay, but keep going, why keep did going. he seek you out? Why did he seek you out is my question. Like, why would he, I guess this is the day, this is peak Luke Ford in 2018. When was this time period? Because um, uh, he was, if I recall, chummy with Mike Cernovich for a while. And then at a point where he was deeply antagonistic to Richard Spencer, who sort of returned the favor and now they're bosom buddies. This whole scene is so bizarre to me, and I just need to, uh, I need someone to unpack it for me or help me unpack it. Um, I'm. We're obviously both, you know, weirdos, Chuck and I. Yeah, but what what prompted him? To, did he seek you out? It's like, or did you seek yeah, him out? He, How did this? Yeah, he sought me out because we we'd cover the Rolling Stone, you know, fraternity gang rape story. We'd both written about it on our blogs. Oh, I see. Okay, um, but then he, you met up in person. I mean, that is that is that a significant enough to meet you up in person? I, mean, I feel weird about like approaching you in person. Like, hey, Luke, let's hang out for a bit. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. All right, so what are his qualifications? Like, how does one end up in the inner rings of the of power? Do you volunteer for a uh, political campaign and? People take a shine to you, and then they invite you in. How does how does this whole game work? Um, well, he, he wrote a book on Calvin Coolidge. He was a Claremont fellow, so he has money, influence, uh, friends. Hmm. Okay, so um, okay, so part two of this observation about last night's stream was that Richard had on like these just couple of women that were just sort of average you know they were just kind of normies uh one was a bit to the right one was a bit to the left and then there was this and there uh one was a trump she was formerly a trump woman and now she's an anti-trump and um and they were all seemingly pro-biden and i simply don't get it like um like did you see this um that this twitter video that went around where biden and the biden's plane was in uh poland and 
it was a distant shot, but it looks like Biden just did a complete just face plant down the entire flight of stairs of uh, Air Force One, right? <laughs> it it yeah. was like, you know, the agony of defeat ads. Remember those? The agony of defeat, uh, ABC, New, ABC Sports and the ski jumper. That yes, practiced. yes. Wide world of sports. I mean, yeah, it's a very classic image. And Biden seems to have done that. And then the next day, he's got bruises all over his face. And no one has said a word. I think it's endearing. Doesn't it, like, humanize him? Like, we're, we're all vulnerable, bro. <laughs> I know, but there's, like, if this happened to, like, Reagan, you know, when I was growing up, this, this would have been front-page news for two solid weeks. It would have... Um, uh, strange times, Luke. I can't, I can't parse it all. I've basically just given up, you know? I've surrendered. I've surrendered to the future. I'm just... Uh, well, I, thinking I, you I, can't I, parse it all is just purely delusion. I mean, you're... you're inching towards reality yeah so it's just the world is just this chaotic broth of bubbling foam <laughs> whatever happens happens and you have no say about it and you just simply have to observe it and try to um maintain some sort of inner peace throughout it all right we have the most agency to the extent we have any agency over our own reactions to reality <laughs> okay but so all right well, um, I, I don't know. I'm at a loss now, Luke. I guess, you know, so why comment on anything? Why call into live streams? Why? Oh, because it's fun. Because it it's fun. fun and it connects you to other people. And we do have a tremendous power to influence other people. It just, it never works directly. It, all, yeah. it only works indirectly. So you try to get me to switch to cotton sheets. That will never work. But if you just share offhandedly one time about how much joy and pleasure you've gotten from buying, you know, high quality cotton sheets, that will affect, yeah. you know, some people. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. People, you know, and I, I it's just the human nature. You don't like being impressed upon, right? And right. there's a certain, if, you know, if I impress upon you that you need to buy cotton sheets, there's a sort of ego motivation on my part. Like, I want to feel powerful. And I want to feel so yes. powerful that I can get Luke to switch to yeah. cotton sheets and instead of wrapping like... himself in pack. Yeah. Yeah, no. people don't so like the, being manipulated and impressed upon. People don't like yeah. being penetrated by your cotton sheet fetish. True, true, Luke. Well put, well put. Um, all right, so what's happening? What's going to happen to Scott Adams? Is uh, is he? Did, is he off the cut? Does he have like a deep? Okay, put it this way. So, um, Mark Dice. You know who Mark Dice is? Uh, is he a comic? Filthy comic. No, 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 no. no, he's no, a no. Twitter, Andrew, Twitter, Dice. Twitter, That's... Twitter handle. No, no. Mark Dice has a YouTube channel. It's very normie friendly. He's on the right. He he makes these videos that are about two or three minutes long. So he's uh, not Andrew you know, Dice Clay. He's not Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, wrong Dice. So anyway, he had a video this morning. I'm still subscribed to him, and he says that the worm has turned on the um, racial issue in America, and that. Uh, Fox News is now opening, is sort of challenging this uh, anti-white narrative, and they're pushing back on it. And seemingly, Scott Adams may have been the catalyst for all of this. That's what his thesis was. Are you following any of this? Yeah, I just got a like a six-pack of Uber Greens, like fresh-squeezed green drink. But yeah, keep going. Yeah, I'm listening. 
Well, do you, do you think that? Um, okay, so there's a lot of rumblings that woke has run its course, and now the uh, reaction is 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 gathering strength, and is there's going to be uh, some pushback, and um, you know the playing field is going to change now because woke is no longer useful to the elites who are sort of pushing it and nourishing it. And they think that they're going to pull the plug on it because it's, it it, it damages them more than it assists them. So, um, yeah, there's been, there's been a big blowback against woke that has been building for for years. I I don't think that this is going to be the particularly important battle. I mean, as long as there's been the term woke, uh, being woke has probably attracted more opprobrium than praise. Right. But now but we've reached the turning point where the forces of anti-woke are now suddenly 51-49 over woke. So woke was making these steady gains for the past, whatever, six, eight years. And now the forces of reaction are building. And now they're going to be on the march for a while. Yeah, but the, the, the anti-woke forces have been have have you know been been building for for years. I, I don't think that this will be. They've been building. They've been building, but now they're actually becoming dominant. That's the point I'm trying to make. That we've reached a tipping point where Scott Adams is the the bellwether for this, where he goes public in this very intentional way, which suggests you know which means that he's taking the temperature and that he knows that. The forces of anti-woke are sufficient enough to carry him through. Yeah, I. But you have I'm, to pick your battles. You have to know if he, he felt like you know what if Sun Tzu, you know, he's got the right. superior force now, and that he can he can like mount a counter. Uh, what's the word? Counter retreat, not counter retreat. Uh, counter insurgency. <laughs> Yeah, I'm highly, highly skeptical of that. I mean, there is a blowback against woke, but I don't think normal people can side with, with Scott Adams in his analysis that simply being black means that you're a member of a hate group. Right. Um, but he definitely has provoked a conversation, and he's not like a class, you know, he's not like a, a-list celebrity, but he's pretty famous, you know. But I haven't Those seen books. one. Those I haven't books seen have been one, around forever. I haven't seen one positive article about Scott Adams, or one, you know, even empathic article about Scott Adams in the in the past week. Ricardo says Scott Scott Adams is the Wizard of Oz. He's been pulling the strings of persuasion for the past decade. He single handedly memed Trump into office. Now he's bringing back segregation. Ricardo is so brilliant. I could, I could never come up with this stuff. Genius, man. Genius. Just, just quantum IQ. Yeah. Galaxy brain, bro. No, I Galaxy mean, he has brain. all sorts of insights that it would never occur to me. He says, normies can hate work all they want. The universities have still been captured. They'll just rebrand. And remember when Luke said that Scott Adams offers more meaningful ideas per minute than any other commentator? Yeah, there was a time, 2015, 2016, even... There was a time in, in I think, uh, 2019, very early 2020, where Scott Adams was offering a lot of, you know, great ideas. Uh, 
let me let me see here some more insights from Ricardo. Luke, twenty twenty three is the year this show becomes the Elliot Blatt show. Luke Ford riding off into the sunset, driven by Elliot and his wheezy laugh. <laughs> Luke is chugging liquid progressivism. That's my no, green juice. No. Yeah, I can't believe you drink that green juice. I I discovered tangerine juice at Costco. Oh, it is so good, Luke. It's like it's like drinking a pureed mango every time. It's so yeah, much but better there's, there's no there's no protein in that. That's just pure sugar. Ricardo says no, it's got vitamin C. Oh, okay. Mickey Kaus only yeah. has influence over Luke. Luke was ordered by Mossad to meet in person with Chuck Johnson. You have to go to an elite university, says Ricardo, and he says that the women on Richard Spencer's show sucked. Luke has transcended shopping for himself. How could anyone think that the Mossad had anything to do with 9-11? That's crazy. <laughs> Richard has picked the last four elections correctly. Richard hates winners. Uh, Ricardo says Chuck Johnson strikes him as a liar. Luke spent his entire 20s in bed with porn stars. So, okay, that was the thing. That was the thing I want to remember. Um, they were all obsessed with January 6th as, as if it was a huge deal. And I didn't share those feelings in the slightest, right? Yeah. And Richard Spencer seemed to have been whining about January 6th. And this is the, like, you know, look, you know, I want them to look up into a face like mine looking down at them. This is, like, he's so far from that Richard Spencer. It was unbelievable. They were. It was like it was a different person. Like, he'd been abducted and, like, the body double of Richard Spencer had been installed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I unsubscribed from his Substack, so I was paying nine dollars a month, but uh, I let it go about when it, when I got near the end of my time in Australia. So I haven't haven't listened to much Richard Spencer in the last six weeks. Yeah. All right. Well, dude, I don't know. That's I think that's what I got tonight. Hey, have you ever had Chobani flip peanut butter cup? It's chocolate and peanut butter flavored. Low-fat Greek yogurt with peanut butter cups, milk, chocolate chips, and peanut butter clusters. I cannot stand peanut butter. Like, it makes me feel like a child every time I work to eat peanut butter. It's for kids going to grammar school, right? Once you get out of grammar school, you need to stop eating peanut butter. It's not It's not meant for adults. Wow, Ricardo says, I unsubscribed for Richard Spencer subsect last month, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but when 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 is Ricardo coming back to subscribe to you know behind the paywall content? You know that that cutting edge, that really edgy stuff that I only offer behind the paywall. Maybe you think maybe you can rest Mark Robin from Spencer. Get him. To, you know, uh, I mean, poor Ricardo. He just wasn't getting his two dollars a month worth. Yeah, he felt like he was being taken for a ride and being exploited and. That I was taking his money and his love for granted. Don't you feel like though? Don't you feel like things like just the atmosphere has just changed? Like there's been like a chapter, a new chapter, and things just seem really different now than they did just a couple of years ago. The post-COVID era seems to have ushered in a new, you know, emotional, spiritual landscape, and like. 
we're in a new chapter. Yeah, that's that a, that's sense? a good point. Yeah, that, that, there's something to that because like one thing that we learned from from COVID is that a lot of the conventional wisdom and a lot of the things the elites were telling us were wrong. Now, I would still say that most of what the elites were saying were, were right, but a lot of what they said was, was wrong. Also, uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter, which is kind of amazing, and there is growing backlash against woke. And Donald Trump has supposedly assembled, you know, fifty thousand like-minded, you know, MAGA types to to run the federal government if he gets back into office. So, huh? Uh, I don't know. Electoral politics are just so tiring right now. I, I I'm not even. I'm not going to engage until October of 2024. I'm I'm just not going to even think about it because it's just it's just too chaotic for me. I can't understand it anymore. I I miss the I, you know I hate to say it, but I miss I I sort of miss the uh, sort of simple binaries, the sort of blue pill days where Democrats fought it out with Republicans and we talked about taxes. <laughs> now now the now the equation is just far more complicated. You know. Yeah, but when you thought you understood it, that was a delusion, right? The world, uh, including politics, is far more co- complicated than we can possibly understand. So any time that you thought you understood politics or understood how the world works, that was a delusion, right? It, it's not like the world just became unfathomable. Any time you thought you could fathom the complexity of reality, that's just delusion. That's true. <laughs> but there was a certain innocence about that delusion you know a certain just let the people let that let the people you know let the elites run the show i'm just a simple man with simple needs and let me work on my hobbies and be done with it you know there was a certain now everybody's got an opinion you know everybody knows all these details and everybody's got these theories and uh, you could just parse them all day long and you know i remember yeah i mean it's like the first time now, I was 21 when I put my hands down a girl's pants and she didn't slap me. It's like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's like pinch me kind of moment, right? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It's like, whoa, this is so wet. And she hasn't, like, stopped me. Yeah. Like, wow, there's, like, this whole furry fun zone that I'm about to dive into. What are you eating, Luke? I'm not. You're still slugging down that. I'm just trying to put away all my groceries, trying to be a responsible citizen. Your Amazon load? Hey, is it, is it, you know, is it really getting to you having to manage employees? It is, Luke. It is. Like, I am, like, just this. It occupies all of my idle time now, just thinking about how to deal with this situation, right? I, I just want to blot it out, you know? I want to, like, just curl up in a closet, you know? Or I just want to, like, just... I just want to pay someone to sort of just, just beat this guy to death with a with a crowbar, you know? I just... I can't believe I just got myself into the situation. When I get frustrated like that, I like to have some Kashi Go Toasted Berry Crisp. It's so good. And it's got nine grams of protein with every serving. Luke, get yourself some tangerine juice and be happy. Ah, oh, so good to talk to you, bro. All right, all right. Like, don't don't gas don't gas your workers. 
I will. Oh, I had I'll, to like I'll... I had to I had a spot C. He was like he did this like therapeutic thing where where um he you know vicariously in his imagination did all sorts of heinous things to someone who had harmed him, and and I stopped him and said, uh, "Don't share that with anyone." with whom you don't have a privileged relationship, all right? Anything you tell me, I can be subpoenaed, right? 12-step relationships, they're supposed to be private and confidential, but they don't have legal privilege. So anything yeah. you tell a therapist is legally privileged. So, yeah. you know, anything heinous that you want to, you know, describe or act out in your imagination, uh, you know, only tell it to a therapist or, you know, a lawyer with whom you have a client attorney uh, relationship so you know don't tell people that you molested underage girls or anything like that so i, I shouldn't blurt it out to uh the audience of a live stream is that what you're saying yeah <laughs> i mean tell that to a don't tell it to anyone with whom you don't have a you know privileged relationship don't okay. don't tell people that you want to kill people okay okay good advice too all right bro on that note blessings take blessings all right, blessing. Sure. Okay, right, take care. Okay, bye. so let's uh, let's play a little Tucker here as I put away my groceries. The verdict in that very depressing but also Byzantine and interesting murder trial in South Carolina tonight. We've got Judge Janine in a moment to take us through exactly what happened and what happens next. But first, you always imagine in your mind's eye that it's evil men who destroy a society, wild-eyed, spit-flecked dictators pounding the podium to demand the annihilation of their enemies. That's the Hollywood version of it. But in real life, people like that rarely get very far. They're too obvious. It's not the cartoon demons you've got to worry about. It's weak men in positions of power. They're the most dangerous. Men with no principles but the desire for self-preservation. Hollow men who live in terror of being revealed for who they really are, men who will do anything to save themselves. That's who you should be afraid of. And you can see that in our current moment. The weakest are the most destructive. How much of his childhood do you think Adam Kinzinger spent hanging from the wedgie nail? How many swirlies did Eric Swalwell endure in high school? How old was Adam Schiff before a girl other than his sister kissed him voluntarily? It makes you shudder to think about it. These are sad, insecure, broken men filled with envy and bitterness from their lonely childhoods. They hate you because they hate themselves. It's not their masculinity that's toxic. It's their lack of it. That's really the story of the Biden administration. The weakest president in history joined forces with the weakest attorney general in history to create a police state. Shocking? Well, once you understand the principle, it shouldn't really surprise you. And it's funny now to remember that the smart people in Washington once told us that Merrick Garland was a moderate. They thought that, apparently, because when Garland's promised Supreme Court seat didn't materialize, he cried. Oh, he's crying, they thought. He's so sensitive and thoughtful. But no, Merrick Garland was crying for himself because he is a self-pitying careerist with no perspectives on his own life, whose job is everything to him. He is, in other words, literally the last person you would ever put in charge of the Department of Justice. So naturally, Joe Biden did. And that turned out to be a pivotal decision. Merrick Garland has presided over the most aggressive attack on civil liberties, and in particular, an attack on the practice of traditional Christianity that any living American has seen. Now, Garland would never say that in public, of course. That would be too straightforward. 
His approach is feline, not canine. Every word is a weasel word. But under sustained questioning, the real Merrick Garland emerges, and it is filthy and dishonest. Here he was in the Senate yesterday facing off against Mike Lee of Utah. DOJ has announced charges against 34 individuals for blocking access to or vandalizing abortion clinics. And there have been over 81 reported attacks on pregnancy centers, 130 attacks on Catholic churches since the leak of the Dobbs decision, and only two individuals have been charged. So how do you explain this disparity? We apply the law equally. Um, I will say you are quite right. There are many more prosecutions with respect uh, to the um, um, blocking of the uh, um, of the abortion centers, but that is generally because they are, those actions are taken in, uh, with photography at the time, um, uh, during the daylight, and uh, seeing the person who did it is uh, quite easy. Um, the, those who are attacking the pregnancy resources centers, uh, which is a, a horrid thing to do, are doing this at night um, in the dark. Okay, in case you didn't follow that, we quote, apply the law equally we just can't, for some reason, manage to investigate crimes that occur after dark. It's the sundown rule, well-known in legal circles. It's hard to believe that Merrick Garland actually said that in a Senate hearing until you remember that, of course, he will say anything, and he does. We're not persecuting Christians, he'll tell you. Then he'll send the FBI after Mark Houck. Houck is a pro-life lay preacher who was praying outside an abortion clinic when a pro-abortion extremist harassed his 12-year-old son. So as any father would, Houck shoved the man out of his son's face. That's what happened. It was not a crime. We know that because no local prosecutor pursued it. And it is certainly, without question, not a federal felony to push a lunatic out of your 12-year-old son's face. But under Merrick Garland, it is now a felony. Almost a year after that happened, Garland sent armed men to arrest Mark Houck in front of his family. On September 23rd, about 6.45 in the morning, uh, the, that's uh, when those 20 so-called so agents, full SWAT gear, uh, heavily armored vests, ballistic shields, helmets, uh, battering ram, uh, banged on my door. Yesterday, Josh Hawley asked Garland to explain that behavior, the utterly indefensible totalitarian behavior. And Merrick Garland, of course, in his soft-spoken way, was delighted to defend it. Let's take a look at the hardened criminals that your Justice Department sent these armed agents to go terrorize on that morning. Here they are. Here they are at mass. Here's the seven children with Mr. Houck and his wife. He has offered to turn himself in. And this is who you go to terrorize. You are the attorney general. Give me your answer. Do you think that it was objectively reasonable and they followed your guidelines in sending 20 to 30 armed agents to terrorize these people? Yes or no? The facts I have, which are those presented by the FBI, are not consistent with your description. So you think it was reasonable? I'm saying the facts are not as you describe. You use an unbelievable show of force with guns that I just note liberals usually decry. We're supposed to hate long, long guns and assault-style weapons. You're happy to deploy them against Catholics and innocent children. He doesn't care. He's got no soul, obviously. And if anything, Josh Hawley's description is too narrow. It's not just Catholics that Merrick Garland has targeted with force. It's anybody who expresses a belief in biblical Christianity in public. But it is true that Catholics do seem to be getting a disproportionate share of federal law 
enforcement attention under Joe Biden. The FBI, as you may know, just drafted a memo claiming that radical traditional Catholics are somehow a national security threat, presumably because they tend to pray outside of abortion clinics. In March of 2021, Paul Vaughn and 10 others were peacefully praying at an abortion clinic in Tennessee. They didn't damage any property. They hurt no one. More than a year after they dared to do that to pray, Merrick Garland sent the FBI to terrorize Vaughn and his 11 children at their home. But if you're not going to let me, then I'll just... No, I want to know why you were banging on my door with a gun. Hey, let's get You're not going to tell me anything? No, do not. I tried. No, you didn't. You did not try. You have to wonder when you see a tape like that, where are so-called Christian leaders? Where's Russell Moore and all the other breastfeeding Christians as that happens, as the U.S. government cracks down on Christianity, on prayer? Silent. Paul Vaughn and his co-conspirators now face more than a decade in prison. Meanwhile, just in case you want to know what the scale is for punishment, the Department of Justice under Joe Biden let half the rioters go who tried to torch a courthouse in Oregon. No charges whatsoever. Of 99 cases that the Portland U.S. attorney brought over that courthouse siege for crimes like assaulting federal officers and civil disorder, more than 47 were dropped by DOJ. The most serious penalties for most of the defendants who pleaded guilty turned out to be community service. So the DOJ under Merrick Garland absolves Joe Biden voters of actual terrorism while doing everything they can to terrify, humiliate, and destroy people who pray in public. They're targeting specifically anyone who is religious, humiliating them in front of their children. Now, why are they doing this? Well, because on some level, all governments hate religious people because it's competition. And revolutionary governments, totalitarian governments, go after religious people first. It happened in the French Revolution, happened in the Bolshevik Revolution, and it's happening now. That's why parents who dare to complain about their children being sexually indoctrinated and openly sexualized are attacked, in some cases, by the DOJ. Again, you can see why. Young people raised to believe that God is in charge are much harder for the government to control as they grow up. They won't worship the government. But, by contrast, if a child is raised to be a narcissist, someone who thinks, well, I can change my gender, he will grow up confused, weak, and reliant on the people in charge of the state. It's a very simple principle. It's why the Maoist government went after Tibetan monks. Anyone who sincerely believes in God is a threat. And that is the measure of a free country in the end. Are you allowed to believe that there's an authority higher than the people in charge of your government? That has always been the hallmark of America, religious liberty. It's in the First Amendment. But in Canada, of course, that's all disappeared. Canada has now become an atheist totalitarian state with amazing speed. And in Canada, it's now a crime to object to sexualized drag shows for children. You're not allowed to say a word. Late last month's month, a pastor in Calgary was violently throw, thrown out of an all-ages, in other words, for children, drag queen story hour for daring to object to the sexualization of children. Watch this. So that's the video. 
<laughs> That's what happened. Who committed the violence in that video? The guy on the ground was the pastor. Before we answer the question, some context will remind you that in Canada, showing any disloyalty at all to the Trudeau government could get your bank account frozen and your truck seized. So maybe you're not surprised to learn that that man on the ground, whose name is Pastor Derek Reamer, who showed profound disrespect for Justin Trudeau's ongoing efforts to sexualize children and mutilate the genitals of children, woke up yesterday to the police banging on his door and telling him he was going to be arrested. Why are you showing up in my home? Because this is where you live, right? Yeah, you guys you could call me and we could... Sorry, what's that? You could have called me. I've been trying to. When? This morning. We need to talk about what happened on the weekend this evening, right? Why do we need to talk about it? Because you're going to be arrested for it and charged. Okay. So we can, we can go deal with it this morning, or I can just put warrants out for you. Charged with what? Mischief and causing a disturbance. Where are all the professional Christians? You have to wonder that again. Where's David French and Beth Moore and Tim Keller and all these people who are defending Christianity as actual Christians are being arrested for being Christians? Hmm. Not a word. Well, today, Pastor Derek Reamer confirmed that a warrant was out for his arrest for hate crimes, and he was right about that. He was not overstating it because this afternoon he was literally arrested. Why? Is there a reason you're blocking me from using the sidewalk? Obstruction, they're working here. I'm not going to obstruct them. Don't worry, I'm not going to run. <laughs> I'm not worried about you. We're just going to stay out of their workspace. Do you mind if I ask you what he's being arrested for? You're going to provide your identification. Pardon? Will you provide your ID? It's for you to answer the question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, why is he being arrested? He has warrants. Warrants out for his arrest? This is what happens when we go against the Drake. Wow! That doesn't look like the Canada you thought you knew. All Molson and sled dogs or some stormtrooper in sunglasses won't answer a question before you provide your ID. And then the pastor, sitting in a car with bars on the windows getting hauled away to jail for being thrown to the ground at Drag Queen Story Hour. We're going to be joined by Pastor Derek Reamer tonight, but he is, of course, in jail. So instead, we are grateful to be joined by Ezra Levant of Rebel News, which filmed the tape you just saw. Ezra, thank you so much for coming on. It's hard to believe that this is happening uh, in your country. Meta question first, is anyone saying anything about it other than you? Not a lot. I mean, Tucker, you have done more journalism on Christian pastors being jailed in Canada than most Canadian media. In fact, the Canadian media either ignore it or cheer it on, calling these people bigots. I should say that there were no charges emanating from the Drag Queen Story Hour itself, neither against Pastor Reimer or against the three men who roughed him up. But then the left-wing mayor of Calgary went on a Twitter rant saying that anyone who lies or engages in vitriol or is full of hate should be arrested and charged. Now, those aren't crimes, by the way. <laughs> 
uh, some of them are a matter of opinion. I could think that the mayor is full of hate. But after the mayor basically directed police to arrest peaceful protesters, they did. And you saw that cop. I think he was embarrassed and ashamed of what he was doing. He had sunglasses on. He was blocking our cameraman. He had that bizarre move, show me your ID before I answer a question. I think he knows that he is doing something contrary to his oath as a police officer. Right now, we have a reporter staked out at the city jail because, Tucker, I don't know if... The, I mean, he's charged with mischief and causing a disturbance. Of course, he was the one who was disturbed by the roughing up. It'll be interesting to see if he gets out on bail or... Like Arthur Pavlovsky, the other Christian pastor, if he'll serve 50 days in prison, which is what happened then. I, I say this as one of the few Americans I know, really, who sincerely loves Canada, and I mean that. But it does seem like darkness is descending on your country. I have to say, just a few weeks ago, Justin Trudeau's martial law, where he, where he seized bank accounts and, and deployed riot horses because some people were honking their horns in their trucks and, and having a, a festive, peaceful opposition to the lockdowns, a judge had a lengthy inquiry, and he said, thumbs up, that there was a justification for martial law. And, and so I'm telling you, Tucker, the checks and balances in Canada no longer work. The opposition parties often don't oppose. The media cheerleads. It's not skeptical or critical. The courts are of no use. Not a single lockdown law was overturned. Our so-called Charter of Rights and Freedoms has not struck down a single action like this. And, and I'm starting to think that we might need help from abroad. And so I'd say to your audience, I know you have senators and congressmen who care about civil rights and human rights in China and Iran and places like that. And I would say, please... Cast an eye up to Canada, too, because I'm yes. worried that we no longer have the capacity to push back for human rights. And Canadian politicians are very uh, attentive when Americans criticize or mention them. Please, American senators and congressmen, put us on your watch list. Things are getting bad up here. And, and for, for context, for those who don't know, I mean, you do run the, the biggest dissident media organization in the country. So you're, you speak with authority. Ezra, we are definitely rooting for you. And God bless and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So teachers in this country losing their jobs for trying to protect their children from efforts to sexualize them. In the Drupa School District in California, teachers are prohibited from telling parents when their children are, quote, transitioning to another gender. So your kid could be getting castrated or chemically or physically, and you're not allowed to know that. Jessica Tapias teaches in that district. She refused to comply with the policy. She said it violated her Christian beliefs as well as her basic responsibilities as a teacher. So she was fired for that. She's brave enough to join us now along with her attorney, Brad Dacus. Thank you both very much for coming on. Jessica, first to you, I assume the other teachers in your district complied with this grotesque order. Why did you not? Uh, great question, Tucker. I'm truly afraid that many other teachers don't even know they're under these directives. I didn't know I was under these directives until I found out. And when I found out from my school district that I was under these directives, I chose to speak up about them and stand my ground and stand in my faith and beliefs. And that's when they said, that's going to be an issue. You have to comply with these directives or your job is on the line. And so I chose... I chose God. I chose to stick with my Christian faith 
And because of that, they released me from employment because in their words, they could not accommodate my religious beliefs. But I mean, you were also, and bless you for doing that, and you should do that, but you were also siding with parents, all of whom, no matter who they voted for in the last election, you'd think would want to know if their children are being castrated, like their children. Don't you think parents want to know? Yes, I think parents have the right to know everything about their children, and I will not partake in withholding any information from a parent. I'm a parent myself, and I would be very upset about that. So this fight is not just for the sake of my job loss. This fight is for the protection of all children. This fight is for the preservation of parental rights. Well, amen. But Brad, is this, since you're the attorney here, is it legal to fire someone for refusing to hide essential facts from parents who are the guardians of, of these children? Yeah, this is a clear breach of public trust, and it's a clear violation of her Title VII rights. She was fired not because of the job she did, Tucker. She was fired because of her religious beliefs. And mind you, uh, she's not alone. We at Pacific Justice Institute, we're representing hundreds of people, employees who are fired because of their faith. And the issue is, is also one of the parents. They're scared, Tucker. Right now, they, they see all of what's going on. They're horrified by it. And it's for that reason, on our website, we've developed uh, customized opt-out forms for all 50 states where parents for free can download opt-out forms, start learning what their rights are, uh, as well as the material that's being given to the kids and their grandkids throughout the country in public schools. I mean, Jessica, I have to ask, were there, and I, and I know what the answer I want to hear, were there teachers you work with who came up to you and congratulated you for your bravery, I hope? Uh, you know, Tucker, I'm being totally overwhelmed in the best way possible with hundreds Good. of teachers reaching out to me, um, telling me that they're ready to die on this hill with me, that they completely align with my views on this, that they are ready to stand up to this beast with me and stand for the protection of children and stand for parental rights and, you know, stand for the fact of the matter that as Christians, we, we can also be in the public sector. And at this point, I feel that I was told, you need to choose one or the other. Do you want to be a yeah. public school teacher or do you want to continue practicing your Christian yeah. faith? Well, good for you. Uh, we be, we're always mean to teachers, but I married one. And I know there are a lot of wonderful teachers and you're obviously one of them. Thank you both for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you, Tucker. So Fox News Alert. On a case, you may have been following a verdict in the double murder trial of disbarred lawyer Alex Murdaugh. The trial attracted a lot of attention. The family is prominent in the state of South Carolina. There was a press conference moments ago. Here's part of it. Justice was done today. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or people think you have. It doesn't matter what you think, how prominent you are. If you do wrong, if you break the law, if you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. And I think South Carolina has shown to the nation and the world how a process can work and work well. Fox's Trace Gallagher is rooted in this trial. He's been following it for six weeks since the beginning. He joins us tonight for a recap. Hey, Trace. 
And Tucker, it's about as fast a verdict as I've ever seen. The jury of eight women and four men deliberated for just under three hours. And usually when you have 76 witnesses, it takes several hours just to review the testimony. So a quick verdict is often beneficial to the defendant, but not this time. And remember, Alec Murdoch's defense was basically, yes, I'm a liar. Yes, I'm a crook. Yes, I'm a drug addict, but I'm not a killer. Most attorneys we spoke with during the trial say Alec Murdoch's biggest hurdle was cell phone video where you could hear Alec Murdoch's voice proving that he was in the kennel, that's the scene of the crime, just moments before the killings happened. Murdoch told investigators that he was not in the kennel, but after being caught red-handed on tape, he later testified that he lied about not being in the kennel because his drug habit had left him paranoid. Murdoch wanted the jury to believe he left the kennel went to his house, did not hear any gunshots, returned to the kennel, and found the bodies of his wife and son. He also testified that he held their bodies, despite having no blood evidence on his clothing. It's notable the murder weapons were never found in this case, so it was impossible to connect Murdoch to any of the weapons. And then Okay, that's it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a good Shabbos.